A few years ago, an article was published in Scientific American called Why Walking Through a Doorway Makes You Forget. We've all had that experience where we walk from one room to another and then forget why it was we came there to begin with. Was it because you were thirsty and wanted something to drink? Or did you need to get a specific book? And if so, what book was that? The article in Scientific American is actually the summary of an experiment originally published in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology. In the study, participants were asked to pick up an object from a table, put it into a shoebox, close the lid, and then take that shoebox to another table where they would leave that first object and pick up a second one. They did this time and time again, and occasionally the researchers would stop, ask them what object was in the box, and if a participant had walked through a doorway between the time they put the most recent object into the shoebox and the time the researchers asked them to name that object, then they were slower about naming the object and more likely to name it incorrectly. In other words, walking through a doorway was correlated with forgetting. It was true independent of the distance walked. It was also true whether the experiment was carried out in a real space with physical tables and physical doorways, or if it was carried out on a computer in a virtual world, the effect was the same. This is known as the doorway effect. Something about walking through a doorway makes us forget. See, memory is not just an issue of how long ago something happened or how well you concentrate. Instead, some forms of memory seem to be kept close at hand until it becomes unlikely that we'll need them. When then those memories are purged to make room for new information that we'll encounter in the near future. Walking through a doorway is a signal for some memories to be erased because they're less likely to be relevant after that point. It's as if our minds are saying, okay, I'm moving on to something else now so I can forget about that. The writers suggest that other things might cause purges as well such as your phone ringing or someone knocking on the door or finishing a task. Really, anything might induce a memory purge if it signals that we are leaving one thing behind and turning our attention to something else. When I read the scripture for today, I thought maybe our tendency to forget is one reason that God didn't seem to be in, in a hurry to have a huge dwelling place built for God. Throughout their wanderings in the wilderness and the conquest of Canaan, God's dwelling place had been a tent called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Its innermost part consisted of the Holy of Holies and housed the Ark of the Covenant. Later, the Ark of the Covenant was housed in a tent in Jerusalem that David made for it. I think there is something very fitting about God's dwelling place being a tent. It could move with the people, always be pitched in their midst, always be in their minds and on their hearts, always remind them of who they were. If the dwelling place of God remained among the people, there were no metaphorical doorways or transition spaces between the people and God. In a very real sense, then, not only was the tent the dwelling place of God, but the people were the dwelling place of God as well. In fact, that's what it means to be the people of God. 
We get hints of this in today's reading from 2 Samuel. God tells the prophet Nathan that King David is not to build the temple. That's a job that will be left to a king that comes after him. But even though David is not to build a house for God, God will build a house for David. We read, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. House here refers to both a building of stone and a people. Ultimately, both are to be the dwelling place for God. The problem is that once a temple is built, once a house is made to contain God and to make God stationary, the people are likely to forget that they too are the house of God. Perhaps David has already lost sight of that fact in this scripture. Maybe sometimes we do too, even though throughout our liturgy are reminders that God is with us even when we leave this place. The gospel is read in the middle of the congregation, a sign that the word dwells among God's people, among us, wherever we are. The cross leads us out at the end of the service, reminding us that wherever we go when we leave this place, God is already there. But the knowledge that God is with us when we leave this place is made most real to us in the Eucharist. We take the bread and the wine, we take the body and blood of Christ, and it becomes one with us. What a tangible sign that we are the dwelling place of God no matter how many doorways we walk through. So what does all this really mean? Well, if we are the dwelling place of God, we can no longer pretend that our lives are completely our own because God works in and through us. If we are the dwelling place of God, we can no more be estranged from God than we can be estranged from our own bodies. If we are the dwelling place of God, we can no longer treat the rest of God's creation, including other people, as if it were not also sacred, as if it were not also transparent to the glory of God, as if it were not also the dwelling place of God. As Bishop of Durham N.T. Wright once said, the temple was never to be a hiding place for God away from his world but always a sign and a means of God's desire to flood the whole creation with his glory and presence. And this is where things get a little bit dicey. We don't have a monopoly on the dwelling place of God. For this reason, Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, An Altar in the World, seems a little hesitant also about building houses for God. She writes, and this is pretty long, but I want to read you the whole thing. She writes, As important as it is to mark the places where we meet God, I worry about what happens when we build a house for God. I am speaking no longer of the temple in Jerusalem, but of the house of worship on the corner, where people of faith meet to say their prayers, because saying them together reminds them of who they are better than saying them alone. This is good. And all good things cast shadows. 
Do we build God a house so we can choose when to go see God? Do we build God a house in lieu of having God stay at ours? Plus, what happens to the rest of the world when we build four walls and cap them with a steepled roof and designate that as the house of God? What happens to the riverbanks, the mountaintops, the deserts, and the trees? What happens to the people who never show up in the houses of God? The people of God are not only the creatures that are capable of praising God. There are other creatures capable of praising God as well. There are also wolves and seals. There are also wild geese and humpback whales. According to the Bible, even trees can clap their hands. Francis of Assisi loved singing hymns with his brothers and sisters, who included not only Brother Bernard and Sister Claire, but also Brother Sun and Sister Moon. Francis could not have told you the difference between the sacred and the secular if you had twisted his arm behind his back. He read the world as reverently as he read the Bible. For him, a leper was as kissable as a bishop's ring. A single bird is much a messenger of God as a cloud full of angels. Francis had no discretion. He did not know where to draw the line between the church and the world. For this reason, among others, Francis is remembered as a saint. Of course, she writes, Francis also built a church. In a vision he had, God called upon Francis to rebuild the church. Unsure what church God meant, Francis chose a ruined one near where he lived. He recruited all kinds of people to help him build it. Some of them just came to watch, and before they knew it, they were mixing cement. Others could not lift a single brick without help, but that worked out, since it led them to meet more people than they might have if they had been stronger. To most of them, building the church became more important than finishing it. Building it together gave people who were formerly invisible to each other meaning, purpose, and worth. When it was done at last, Francis's church did not stand as a shelter from the world. It stood as a reminder that the whole world is God's house. Temple, church, word, Eucharist, all of these are dwelling places for God. But there are a million others besides. Our whole lives are lived at the altar of God. We don't go to church. We are church. St. Peter's is not this building we worship in. The church is not any building. It is more like a tent that we carry with us wherever we go, a tent that we pitch in our hearts whenever we find an altar in the world, wherever we find a dwelling place of the divine. Maybe churches would do better if they truly were housed in tents, where one whole wall could be lifted up to let the world in, where there would be no doorways to make us forget who we are or to mark in versus out, where we would always be more concerned with building the church than with finishing it.